Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, we're rounding out field season with a new guest. You may have heard this guest's voice before. He's one of the three hosts of A Life in Ruins podcast on ours, yours and mine, Archaeology Podcast Network. Uh, so we're joined by Carlton Shield Chief Gover, um, who is a citizen of the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma and researches the pre-colonization history of the Pawnee, Arikara, and Wichita Nations. And thank you so much for being with us, Carlton. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm really excited to be on uh, The Dirt. So why don't we just jump right in? Can you describe your academic trajectory and what sort of first interested you in archaeology and how did you get to where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I wasn't a good high school student. I had like a 2.33 repeating GPA. Uh, I had a really hard time doing homework. So college just was not in the cards for me. Um, so after high school, I actually ended up joining the United States Marine Corps. But uh, before I was supposed to go to Paris Island, <clears throat> I uh, got uh, not a, what is it medical, medically discharged. So I went to community college instead and was kind of waiting to rejoin the Marines and decided that I should get, at least get some college credit. But while I was pursuing an associates in history, because my game plan at the time was to basically become a high school football coach that also taught history, um, I took a historic archaeology class and absolutely fell in love with the topic and the subject and took the prehistoric class the next semester with the same professor. And he really pushed me to get my act together uh, academically, as well as to pursue a degree in archaeology, because he, he told me point blank that they need more um, indigenous people in the field and that my perspective would uh, is sorely needed. Unfortunately, my community college did not have a anthropology associates. They had like a certificate in uh, preservation. Mm -hmm. And that did not interest me because it would have kept me at the community college for another two years. And at that point, I'd already done two. So I wasn't trying to mm -hmm. uh, sit there. So then I ended up going to undergraduate at uh, transferred out to Radford University in southwestern Virginia, where I got uh, my bachelor's of science in anthro. And it was kind of towards the end of my uh, junior year, did I realize if what I wanted to do, I was going to need at least a PhD. And that was like a really defeating realization. <laughs> um, or I was like, wow, I still got a lot to go. And, um, yeah, I mean, I'd always had a, and so from there I applied to Wyoming. And then when I got my master's at Wyoming, I came here to see Boulder. Um, but I'd always had this passion for history growing up. And I was like one of those kids that absolutely loved museums and growing up in Northern Virginia, always going to the Smithsonian, um, uh, specifically air and space. You're spoiled and the, for museums. I know. And the, the Udvar Hazy Center was right down 
down the street from me. So I'd often on weekends go there and just kind of nerd out over airplanes. <laughs> so I kind of always had this background and love of, of um, museums, archaeology and history. So, so I feel like we can do some shop talk here about podcasts. Um, so how did a life in ruins, uh, the podcast come to be? So our, some, some folks know this, our idea for a podcast started as kind of a joke that we eventually realized was actually a good idea. Um, but I'm assuming that's not everybody's business model (laughs) or maybe, maybe it it is. Absolutely. So actually, I've always wanted to start a podcast since undergraduate. I was really fascinated with drunk history. So I wanted to make a podcast called Inebriated Archaeology. It was like the same premise (laughs) of uh, getting a little too much alcohol and trying to talk archaeology. Um, no one was on board with this idea in undergraduate, <laughs> absolutely nobody. Huh. And I realized it was going to cost a lot of money just to get the equipment, record it, produce it all myself. And it was just kind of out of my wheelhouse, especially since I was, you know, working 35 hours a week at Domino's as delivery driver, going to school for full time and, you know, uh, uh, doing all my fraternity activities on top of that. So I really didn't have time to, to do any of that stuff anyways. Um, I played around with it a bit when I got to my master's at Wyoming. I was like, well, now I'm in grad school. Maybe I can get some people on board. And none of them were about it either. They're like, no, this doesn't sound great. You want us to get drunk and then like put this out in public? Like we're trying to get jobs, dude. Like that's not a great idea. Mm, So it just kind of, it died. So I was like, all right, that's fine. Uh, But then I got interviewed for Heritage Voices Mm -hmm. on the APN. Yeah. And I was talking to Jessica afterwards about like, how did you do this? Like, what's the process? And she got me in contact with Chris. Um, so I spoke with Chris Webster, our producer at the APN about podcasting. And he told me if I can come up with the premise and maybe some co-hosts, he'd think about it. Um, so at the time like, I was like, I've got one. I was like, I got, <laughs> I got like, one. He's uh, like, not that one. <laughs> yeah. No, we, we dropped the alcohol bit, but, um, at that time, uh, my co-host David Howe, who's, uh, pretty pro, prolific i'd say on instagram uh he runs the ethno synology instagram yeah, channel yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we are subscribed I, yes <laughs> uh david had always been i knew him in in uh my master's at university of wyoming he'd always been funny he'd always want to do public outreach and he'd been doing it through ethno um and he was done with school and working so i was like i asked him if he'd be interested and he just didn't want to do He's like, well, I don't want to edit this. I'm like, no, 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 here's the big deal. All we have to do is record and do it consistently and everything else is taken care of. So he was down and then uh, it was his idea to bring in Connor because uh, Connor had left Wyoming before I'd showed up. I met Connor at a couple events and we had stayed in the same hotel room at SA and DCs. And uh, yeah, we got along great. He was about it because he was also in his uh, career as a GIS specialist for Alpine Archaeology out of Montrose. And both of them were kind of missing that academic vibe of having to do research and articles and being involved in the field. So it worked perfectly for, for them as well. So that's kind of how A Life in Ruin started. And then we pitched to, to Chris and Chris was about it. Uh, we dropped the whole, you know, getting drunk beforehand thing mm. um, and kind of did a show that we we like i mean it's our show is really broy there's no getting around that like having three predominantly white guys talk about anything isn't totally fun uh but we seem to make it to make it work and it, it has kind of you know more of a laid back appeal if that makes any sense mm-hmm. 
it's it's an it's a taste. You either like our podcast or you don't. And we get we get emails letting us know pretty constantly if they mostly if they don't like it. <laughs> mm, we get some of those. Yeah, yeah, we we do. Yeah, I feel like there's a um, I don't know, almost like a spiritual compliment <laughs> of our sure. two shows. Yeah, in terms of uh, who doesn't like us, it's mostly people who, <laughs> who don't like fun. Yeah, I saw that. You guys were talking about the recent email. You, I guess it wasn't that recent, but maybe like a month or two ago. Yeah, someone took the time to inform us that uh, they, they weren't a fan. And just duly noted, ma'am, just sort of, <laughs> thank you. This is free. But, you you know, you don't yeah, have to I listen. Do think that, I do think that our respective shows do have that approach of like, you're enjoying yourself. Yeah. And like that's, and that's sort of an important important aspect of 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 the work or of outreach or something is like this isn't something that should just be like a slog like this should yeah be you don't want someone to feel like they're sitting in you, a dry lecture yeah absolutely there there's opportunity for that out there yeah there certainly yeah. is yeah i wouldn't be doing this if i wasn't having fun like i do the podcast to escape from all my academic mm-hmm. responsibilities and professional responsibilities so and like you said it's yeah. free people don't have to pay to listen to our podcast so no. like if you don't like it you don't just don't don't just don't listen yep yeah just go outside, <laughs> just outside. Just like, i don't know oh well actually that's a perfect segue thank you amber speaking of going outside <laughs> Uh, when you go into the field, Carlton, what's a typical day in the field? Well, is there a typical day in the field for you? Cause you do some CRM work. Is that correct? I used to. So like in between undergraduate, my master's that summer, I did CRM work. Mm-hmm. My field work now is almost entirely comprised of like research field work involving either field schools or ongoing research projects through okay. other institutions. Okay. So what does that look like? So, yeah, uh, with the field schools, I've, you know, just from having, you know, graduate degrees at this point, um, I'm always, you know, either a crew chief or assistant field director. So unfortunately, I don't get a dig anymore. But usually, uh, like a usual day is we're working from about uh, eight till three, three or four um, with a 30 minute or an hour lunch in between. Mm-hmm. And it's mostly just management and teaching students on how to become archaeologists ha- is, is kind of the biggest component of my day and making sure the total station is working. <laughs> um, yep. mm-hmm. That just yep. becomes the, that's the big one, you know, depending on the field school and the project aims, like the one that I've been doing with university of Colorado Boulder with my advisor, that's a site's over a mile long. And we're trying to understand, you know, what's going on in space at that um, site so mostly you know horizontal excavations in one uh soil strata so un- understanding how people are organizing themselves within the space like exactly where are they, living, and try- where are they working yep so trying to uncover you know houses that belong in this this large town mm-hmm. um and trying to identify if there's ethnic neighborhoods which we believe oh. um but then uh this recent project i just got back from where i was working for fort lewis college down in durango that one was more geared to be a CRM style of field school in which we partnered up with the Bureau of Land Management. So we were doing site survey for the BLM on four potentially Pueblo one period sites. So that was the, you know, 
pedestrian survey every 10 meters, teaching the students how to, you know, what does 10 meters look like in visual space? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good thing. To always, know. always, you know, that was the, that was the best part was the 10 meter thing, how to run transits with a compass mm -hmm. and then doing, um, phase two site survey. So just, we were did like little baby 50 centimeter by 50 centimeter test units. Oh, that is very small. Oh my gosh. It was, they were adorable. And I, we had still had like two students per unit oh, and they were still taking their time. Crowded. And I, I know very crowded. And they're like, man, this is hard. I'm like, you know, usually you excavate like a one by one by yourself. You guys not only have a quarter of the size of a unit, but you have two people. So, you know, chop, chop, we have things <laughs> to find. And that was, and then we did actually a lot of drone work. Uh, oh. on that site. So we got to do a lot of, that was a really fun field school because it was really about gearing those students on to be professionals in CRM. And I also learned a lot just by working with the BLM archaeologists because my experience in BLM or CRM, cultural resources management archaeology, had been so limited that I had to get myself up to speed and talk to a bunch of people and how do I manage how do I teach kids about something, not kids, adults, on something that I myself am very novice with? Yeah. Um, but lucky enough, I had a lot of um, colleagues who do work in CRM uh, who were able to, to guide me in what was most important. Can I ask a quick follow-up? Um, Absolutely. The, the drone stuff that you do, um, is that primarily for for mapping the site or for recording information? Or what, what do you mostly use drone imagery for? It was mapping the site. So that's the uh, the field school director, Dr. Jesse Toon. Um, that was, that's his kind of big thing is drone mapping. And it was a lot of fun. And I, you know, when I found out he was throwing drones up, <laughs> I, uh, I took like a bunch of logs because we're in a juniper pinion forest and spelled out, you know, help us <laughs> branches <laughs> that showed up on the aerial imaging. Um, For and posterity. He, <laughs> you know, it was really funny because he had the dean and the president of the college come oh. out and he he had these maps of the site looked really professional and you couldn't see it unless you pointed it out but i could definitely see where it was <laughs> where it just says help us so he i mean he took it in stride he was like all right carlton um but it was really cool to show the students you know visualize this the the space uh, that we were working at from a bird's eye view yeah. and be able to identify a lot of these features that supposedly had been recorded there. It's a valuable skill to know how to use drones these days and also how to prank your site director. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Learning all around. Um, we're going to take a very quick ad break and then we will be right back with more interview. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, 
membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. All right. So we're back. Uh, and so you're talking to two people. Anna, um, who study populations that we're not directly connected to beyond basic human similarities. You know, you got Anna and Neanderthals, <laughs> you know, me, and like more or less similar you know, pre-Islamic South Arabians, but more recently, you know, like old rich white guys from, from the UK. So, you know, we've got, mm. got something going on there. Uh, but can you give us a sense of your experience in working on the archaeology of your own heritage? It's different, right? Like it's very personal to me to be working on heritage that's directly associated. I imagine it would be. And as well as like museum collections as well, when mm-hmm. I get to work on those, because I see myself, like that's my history. That's my family's history. Yeah. So like the site that we work on in Nebraska, the Lynch site, you know, that's potentially the site of ethnogenesis for the Pawnee and the Arikara. Mm-hmm. Like that's when we became the identities that we know of ourselves as in the 19th century. And like to think, did my family, is there, does my family have a house here is really strong. And it gets, and at times I get really defensive over these things and I have to kind of like take a deep breath and pull myself up. Cause when people try to, you know, doing the regular science scholastic thing of talking through research problems or discussing it, I can, there's, there's so much of me in my research that it's hard not to take it personally. Yeah, and I have to yeah. be constantly aware to like kind of pull myself out. Like, no, they're not attacking you. They're, you know, just doing, doing the, the regular science and, and, and having this discourse. So, you know, for a while I needed, I, I was constantly aware of that. And so that's why I went to Ukraine back in the summer of 2019. So I can work on a project that wasn't, anywhere near mm-hmm. Pawnee related. Cause even working on other sites, you know, even in Wyoming working on paleo Indian sites, even though they're not directly Pawnee, that's still North American indigenous history. And that since it's 10,000, 12,000 years in the past, it's like, well, this could still be related. Like this is still part of my nation's history. Yeah. <clears throat> so I figured if I went to East Europe um, and worked on sites after North America and Asia had been separated by uh, ocean again, to have that experience and to kind of really reflect on what it was like and see if maybe that's how my colleagues feel. But it was a completely different experience. I was, I did not have to worry about um, graves or all these cultural protocols. I'm usually have to worry about, I could just go out there with a shovel and dig and, and listen to podcasts and just like enjoy myself. Whereas when I work on sites here that are um, indigenous, I'm constantly thinking about cultural protocol, being respectful, mm-hmm. um, and doing the best I can because archaeology is destructive and I don't want to be totally complicit in destroying my own history. Right. Yeah. So I, I recognize those experiences and Ukraine really kind of helped me, um, open my eyes to really how much differently I treat this record here in North America than I do elsewhere. Yeah. Um, that's a really, um, a really brilliant like thought experiment but actually it was like 
very physical experiment too for a practical experiment Um, really is that something that you um that you'd like to do again or is that something that you've sort of have you have you written about your experience in ukraine or anything like that I impressed them enough to become a research associate with one of their um, non-government organizations. And I've, I've been planning on going back to Ukraine for a while now, but with COVID that's made it hard, but I still in contact with them and where I'm working now. um, What's nice about Ukraine is that it wasn't just trying to find a country that doesn't have Pawnee heritage, but Ukraine is the breadbasket of Europe. So I'm still working in a geographically, analogous region to where I work in the Great Plains. So there was still a research aspect to it where I was looking for a European analogy to what I do and I found it. Um, So I've been building relationships with them and comparing notes about the Neolithization and Mesolithization of of, uh, the Missouri River Basin and then um, Ukraine. So I still plan on going back um, for, for, you know, a couple other purposes other than just to kind of have a different experience digging in the dirt. Yeah, that's something that I I really admire, which is sort of the very deliberate nature of your choice of sites. I mean, for for me and for a lot of archaeologists I know, it's site choice based on what projects are available or interest or looking at a particular aspect of human behavior. But what you have is sort of what's baked into that is a really introspective look at your own perspective on archaeology. And I wonder how many archaeologists really do consider that when they, when they choose their work. Yeah, uh, that's, that's a great question. These are things I've talked with my indigenous colleagues about, and I get varied responses as many of them just don't have the opportunities to dig outside or excavate or have projects outside of uh, the United States. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like I had a similar conversation with Emily Van Alst, because she did her field school in Japan. So we've had kind of conversations on basically this code switching of excavating or working with our ancestral material or physical culture between and then working outside. And so it's kind of that realization moment of like, oh, yeah, this is completely code switching. Yeah, behavioral code (laughs) switching. Cool. Yeah. Huh. Moving to a, a blatant opportunity for you to uh, plug some of your stuff. But you recently posted something on Twitter that brought up this question for me. So do you find that working as an indigenous archaeologist of indigenous sites when you're doing that and you're not in the Ukraine, um, do you sometimes get attention from non-academic or academic sources more for who you are rather than what you're researching? Or is it just kind of all intertwined? Oh, absolutely. And it's definitely something that I struggle with, whether it's my research that people want or if it's my identity. And that's like a constant thing I'm, I'm, I'm worried about. And on social media, it's weird because I'm white passing. So there's more of like I get it from both sides being critiqued for my indigeneity, either not being too being uh, basically for being, you know, seemingly too white from each side. Um when it comes to research and being asked to give talks, mm-hmm. I think a lot of it does have to do with my identity and what I work with. Cause those are so you know intertwined. So it'd be hard to, to piece those apart. Right. Yeah. Um, Cause I work directly on Pawnee, Arikara and Wichita archeology span while being a Pawnee archeologist. So, and I, it, I, I still struggle with trying to figure out some people's motives for asking me to, 
to do work, but I'm pretty sure like, I'm not that bad of a scholar. Like I do good <laughs> research. Like I imagine like that still has to be a component of it. Like if I was just, if I was doing bad work, I want to be asked to do things. Probably not. I guess that's, I mean, I, yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> wasn't just like, Oh, um, no, I, that's, um, that makes a lot of sense. And, and that's, um, and I think that that's something that uh, I would guess that many people who aren't in a similar position or an analogous position would never think about that. Um, you sort of like, am I being, am I being tokenized or am I being yeah, evaluated um, for like a, a, a poster for, yeah. for something? Like, I think that that's something that many people aren't given the opportunity to think about and to weigh, but having watched lots of content <laughs> of yours, I can, I think that your work is good. So that's oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I know. Um, so do you and the other Life in Ruins hosts have a particular philosophy to your podcast? Um, are there parts of archaeology as a discipline or the experience of archaeology that you try to highlight? Um, or is your focus really, um, centrally storytelling oh my our podcast is like a menagerie of ideas the three of us are so different in what we want um so like i i try more recently have been more interested in kind of like npr style of storytelling and research one of the other hosts is more interested in like joe roganizing <laughs> or like yawning our podcast and connor is like a really good middle of our triumvirate to make sure we're all kind of grounded and mixing all of them together um so he's usually the voice of reason between the three of us and so our big one at first when we first started the podcast was just trying to interview archaeologists like young professionals and what inspired them to become archaeology and why they're passionate about the research. And we've grown to include more uh, segments that include psychomers or people that aren't just archaeologists, but paleontologists or people that specialize in public outreach. And then some episodes were just the three of us talking about a topic that we're fascinating. in. so we kind of allowed ourselves a wider variety of topics to cover. It's stressful to interview another academic, someone that you don't know. And sometimes we need a break from it. So that's why we've gone to do these series on like right now, I think we're working on domestication of, of animals throughout uh, the globe. Ooh. So we've been able to do like this three, three part series on just talking about domesticates in different parts of the world, why they're domesticated. And it's just the three of us. So it's not as, um, intense as having someone come on and preparing for the interview. So we've kind of become a mix of highlighting uh, the careers of professionals, talking about topics in the, in the field, um, but also like something that we've, we've always tried to talk about uh, is like, it's okay to struggle as a academic or in the field, like both academically and like with mental health is something that we've always tried to talk about, um, with our, with our listeners, because the, you know, me, Connor and David all have our, um, things that we're working through and it's kind of normalized that as well to our audience. Yeah. Like, yeah. Hey, there are days where like, you know, I'm in my closet crying and thinking about like quitting academia and thinking I'm just a big old idiot being at, you know, 29 at this point and still working for $15 an hour while my friends and fraternity brothers from undergrad are now making over six figures. And to have those important conversations, 
because, you know, especially when it comes to graduate school and academia and in archaeology in particular, there are a lot of pitfalls in our field. There's a lot of expectations that are placed upon grad students and you go through a lot of stress. And so we've made it a, an important part of our podcast identity to, to talk about those things openly and professionally. Um, so maybe one of our listeners who's struggling through it as well um, knows that they're not alone. Yeah. Yeah, we, yeah, we try and, to do a similar thing. It's definitely important. Yeah, yeah, and I think that it's really, um, and you know, this is something we've had. Uh, you know, listeners will have heard like our last interview that we had, and like listened to me muddle through my own realizations. Uh, but like in conversations that I've had lately, and sort of in in conversations we've had with other shows, um, I have been thinking about that aspect of. Um, graduate work and graduate school and just being a student at all, um, there is an isolating aspect to it that um, everyone, like everyone is struggling and everyone is, is, is working hard and, you know, tired and stressed and concerned about funding and all of that stuff. And so you look around and you may think like, oh, well, you know, they're doing fine, but it's me. It's clearly just me. Um, and I think about if I had had, um, if, if podcasts had looked the way they do now, um, when I was in undergrad and when I went to graduate school, I wonder what the experience would have been like. I wonder if I would have felt as alone and as alienated if I had known that there were other voices that I could hear. And, yeah. and then also, um, you know, recognizing that other people were listening to this and other people knew about this. And even if I, you know, even if I listened to a life in ruins and I heard this and I was like, Oh, this really resonates with me. I get it. Uh, even if other people don't feel that way, I could at least tell myself, well, they listened too. And so like they're hearing this too, even if they don't feel it themselves. And so I think that that's a, a huge aspect of what, um, shows like yours, shows like ours, I guess, but like these shows that sort of humanize and familiarize people with, with what, what the work is and what it looks like and what it feels like. Absolutely. Yeah. I think there's also just speaking to the sort of isolating experience of being in academia, there is a just really antiquated, um, kind of perspective in academia that if you're in grad school, you're kind of, you're paying your dues and sort of the more senior academics are doing better because they have paid those dues and bearing this alone is sort of part of that. Um, and, and that's something that I think is important to try to move away from. And, and in our discussions with interview guests, we always ask about trajectory to where they are now, because it's really we want to show that there's no single way to to get to the point of being an archaeologist or anthropologist. There's no correct way to be in academia. It's not it's not a cookie cutter. It's not a, a, a simple formula that you can kind of click your way through, check check off all the boxes. Um, and so normalizing that as well, I feel, is is an important sort of task for for voices like ours that can get broadcast out onto the Internet. Yeah, 100 percent. Like you said, there isn't that cookie cutter trajectory into grad school anymore. And we're, I mean, the market is way too saturated. There's not enough jobs for everyone to be struggling through grad school. Like this isn't supposed to be a experience that's supposed to whittle people out. Yeah. You know, like that's, that's such an archaic view of grad school. 
and it's supposed to the create profession. more people within the discipline, not just exactly. <laughs> and it doesn't breed a environment of collaboration either. No, it's competition. And it's and that's just silly because especially in today's research climate where everything's becoming far more collaborative, this isn't like, you know, and, and also let's let's break it out. People in the 70s, to get your PhD in the 70s, you had to read like six articles. That was it on your field of study. And like then you just published something new that, you know, 40 years ago you had. To, yeah. And 40 <laughs> years later, you had to revise it because it was just so grotesquely bad. So, I mean, the. And I've had, you know, people, elder, older or elder professors, you know, the things they couldn't even have gotten a job with the CVs they had when they were in grad school. Like the, the times have changed so wildly into what's expected of a grad student to get like a professorship, a professorship or a curatorial job. It's just insane that like my perspective has always been like, I have a pretty, I want to say hands-off advisor but he keeps me on a loose collar <laughs> and he just checks in to make sure I'm not saying yes to enough stuff, but he allows me that freedom to research on my own and, and do these other experiences, which have now led me into a path of, you know, I'm interning uh, this summer for the Denver museum of nature and science. And when I'd first gotten to Colorado museums weren't on my mind and just, he allowed me to explore museum jobs on my own and mm -hmm. pursue muse a museum certificate program. Um, and he's been hugely supportive. And some of the horror stories I hear from some of my colleagues that are in the same level as me, where their advisors just don't even allow them the freedom to research what they want yeah. or allow them to do extracurricular things that are beneficial to the mental or physical well-being of the student. It's just like, that's nuts. Like the only time Doug had to tell me to calm down is when I was doing Muay Thai. And he's like, you do realize if you get concussed, <laughs> it's don't like, get kicked in the head. Yeah. It was just like, you know, your brain is kind of important here, dude. Like make sure we don't, <laughs> we don't lose that. And I was like, you know what? You're right. I probably should settle down with this. Perhaps yoga. <laughs> right. Besides punching, kicking, etc. Uh, <laughs> your other extracurriculars. You are a podcaster, obviously. You're on Twitter. You do public events. Um, so what's your favorite thing to do as outreach? Or maybe what are you most proud of, of doing in your outreach work? You know, I'm not that active on Twitter. I have one. I don't like to say things on Twitter because Twitter can just be so demeaning. It's very the Twitter, mean. The, the Twitterverse is such a toxic place. And I'm just like, I like to, I like to watch other people. I don't really like to interact on Twitter. I'll like things. I don't ever degrade people. I've merely only gotten a following on Twitter just because of like recent events with the SAAs and me saying like one or two things. Mm -hmm. um, I'm more active on, I'd say definitely Instagram. I just like sharing. I'm really bad at posting on that too. I'm so sporadic. Um, but I like to talk about, you know, who would have guessed Pawnee history oh. on there. And uh, that's kind of what I've, it's kind of a mix of my personal life and research. I don't want to have two accounts. But what I'm definitely most proud of in terms of that public engagement on social media, primarily through my personal Instagram or the Life and Ruins Instagram, is when I get emails or messages from other indigenous people in archaeology expressing their gratitude for talking about what I talk about. And like, especially other white passing indigenous folks like myself who have really come out and said like, Hey, what you talk about is extremely important. And it's inspired me to be more involved in my community and not to think too much about the color of my skin or that they want to take their, um, 
go to grad school in anthropology. So it's been really cool to see all these other people that are like me um, come out and, and show support for what I say. I mean, that wasn't like the whole point. I just talk who I am. You know, I don't have an agenda. I'm just being myself on the podcast. So to get that support and to hear that I've inspired somebody else is like really heartfelt to me because that's, I, I never would have thought in a million years I'd be out here and kind of like um, inspiring people to go further in their culture or their uh, academics. Yeah. That's, that's wonderful. Yeah. That's, I'm so glad that they, um, expressed that to you. Like, I'm glad that it happened, but it's I'm so, really glad it's so that great that to get feedback like that. Absolutely. Yeah. I, um, I don't know about you, but like the, the occasions on which something like that has happened for me, it's something that makes it, uh, makes the sort of doubting voices a little bit quieter in my head. Yeah. And it's, it's been strange because some of the negative stuff, it's, uh, it's come from more within my own, like my own nation, which is weird. Oh. And so, um, but then like I talked to, like, I'm really close with our, our cultural division with the Pawnee Nation. I work, you know, with the Tip O'Neck professor and the cultural resource director is my uncle. Um, oh, and so when I chat, <laughs> yeah. So like, you know, and I chat with them and they're like, who's talking smack to you? I'm like, well, it's this person. They're like, that person doesn't come to language. They don't come to dances. Like their, their, their idea of being indigenous is blood quantum, which is like a whole other can of worms. So part of me, like, I was always grew up being pawning. Like there was never a moment where I realized it. Like my dad's half, my grandfather's full and he was born, you know, he wasn't a U.S. citizen until the twenties. Um, so I've always been around it. It's always been part of my life. I grew up on reservations out West, just never in Pawnee, Oklahoma. We just never lived there. Um, so I've always been indigenous. There was never that, um, doubt. Um, and so, really kind of growing up and getting into my twenties and being more actively involved with the community and, and a part of the culture that not many people realize the whole idea of blood quantum really became a, a huge, uh, realization. And, and, and what I mean by blood quantum, for those not listening, there's like three things, the U S government tracks by blood that's horses, dogs, and Indians. Mm-hmm. So native Americans have a pedigree. So I literally have my tribal ID card has my blood quantum on there. And that's purely, a U.S. government construct. That's not an indigenous ontology. That's part of that whole kill the Indian idea. And yeah. we're starting to reach an it's, it. We're reaching an issue now where there are individuals that have like five or four or five. Um, uh, they belong to four or five tribes blood quantum wise, you know, from intermarriaging, but all their blood quantum is lower than the tribe's registration number like what they need to be enrolled so you can have someone that like by blood is like three quarters indian but they can't enroll for any one of the tribes because they're not because those three quarters enough or yeah exactly into too many fractions so we've recently within last decade in indian country kind of come to this whole like oh holy crap realization moment of we're now starting to see the products of kill the indian through blood quantum so we've had these huge conversations in indian country of like what does it mean to be the tribe and blood isn't cutting it anymore because there's more people that may be not. And the whole idea of blood being what identifies you as an Indian is just crazy. 
but it's, it's hard for tribes to justify, well, here's this person who's supposedly half, but they don't show up to anything. They don't contribute to the nation. They just sit there and like, well, I'm half. And that makes me better than you. When you have people that are like one eighth and one sixteenth who are highly active in the community, who know the language and are part of preservation projects, but they're not getting the benefits of the nation. So it's really kind of been this eye opening. I totally did not mean us to take down this whole conversation. Like I, I, I took this conversation. We went like left down the riverbank. No, I mean, um, this is something that we, we don't, really talk about on the show because we're not coming from a place of, of familiarity with it, with, with any of these issues. So this is great. Okay. Yeah. And this is something that I have seen. I've sort of, um, watched conversations happen on Twitter. Yeah. Um, you know, and the people that I follow participating in conversations who have a stake in the conversations, um, and, and so it's something that I don't like describing things that involve like people's lived experiences and like their quality of life, um, as interesting, but like, it's something that is interesting to me. It's something that I, I, um, appreciate the opportunity to learn about, um, because it is something that compelling perhaps part of, well, yeah, it's, it's compelling, but it's, you know, it's a part of, um, you know, living, living in the United States, um, being um, descended from settlers in the U.S. is something that um, it does involve me in a way because, you know, if I have a heritage here, my heritage is on the side of like the U.S. government establishing these things and these sort of policies that have long-term repercussions for communities. Um, and and so really appreciate the having having some of because, you know, I've I can Google stuff, but, uh, but I really appreciate hearing your perspective on that. Yeah, of course. I mean, like, and it's a struggle for myself too. Like I'm white passing, like I'm not fully indigenous and it's like, my mom gets really upset with it a lot because she doesn't quite understand it. Like she grew up in the West. She knows she's been around reservations her whole life and has known indigenous people. But she's always like, why don't you go do work in like Ireland or do some research on, you know, the Hodges side of your family. I'm like, because mom, like that, that side of the family is protected. There will always be that information around and anyone can look for my father's side of the family. That's the one that needs help. And that's who, where I'm putting my time and energy in because there'll always be people that were working. Like there's Irish people in Ireland working on Irish archeology. span yep. They're fine. There's a whole country <laughs> of them. They're doing great. They don't need some fifth generation, you know, Irish immigrant coming in. That's like, well, my middle name's Quinn. So like, you know, where's the haggis? They don't care. I'm not, I'm not, I will not have an emic perspective at all uh, of going there, but you know, my dad's family, the Pawnee side there that I'm the only archeologist in the nation. I'm needed here with them, not some, some distant country I've never been to. Well, and that is like a really, um, that, like that anecdote you just shared, I think is a really good illustration of the, um, different definitions of heritage. Uh, and, and sort of, uh, because, you know, I, my, my father, my very different, um, uh, very different but my father was like well why don't you like work on roman stuff because you know we're italian and i'm like well a no we're not and b like that's, <laughs> uh, and, and b no thanks um is your family and, even from and, rome no like that area my family's not no no 
my my family is like obliquely italic i think um, <laughs> the the font of my you slant yes. slightly to the left <laughs> we, yeah that's what we do yeah um we always have um but it's something that um it is like it it is different when you have um, sort of structures of of power and structures structures of access to knowledge. Um, how would you characterize what an equitable and inclusive archaeology looks like? Oh gosh, uh, <laughs> archaeology is an inherently colonial practice. The whole push recently to decolonize archaeology is impossible. There's no such thing as decolonizing something that's inherently colonial. You just can't do it. You can indigenize something, bring in indigenous ontologies, but there's no such thing as archaeology in the majority of world populations, no specifically anywhere outside of Europe. It's hard to look at something like archaeology and think of something that's going to be equitable and inclusive in an American context because there's so much layering to becoming an archaeologist like a graduate school specifically, like there's so much you have to get through as a non person of European descent, yeah. non, you know, white straight male being kind of the top category in there that you have to get through and overcome. So different socioeconomic statuses. So really for an equitable, inclusive archeology, span the first thing you're going to need is an entire restructuring of the academic system to allow people of who are not white or straight or male to get into the whole system. How would I characterize basically everyone that got their degree from the fifties to, you know, late seventies, they have passed away. Like we a, need them to, this is a similar position that I floated on another show. <laughs> this, I mean, you can't, you can't have them. Yeah. Like you look at the response. You had two different kinds of people response to the recent SAA critique. One, it was a lot of indigenous people that said, we're tired of this organization. We're out. Or a lot of yeah. like Twitter was crazy. But then also there were a large number of tenured and emeritus faculty across the country that left the SA because it was becoming quote unquote too political. And it's like, no, you're being an asshole. Your archaeology was never non-political. You and the rest of your white, your white boy club just didn't care about the consequences of what you were researching. Right. Yeah. So there's a generation of archeologists that fundamentally like they need to go, they should retire and stop writing. They all need to open up that job market in general. And this is my hot take because there is like a younger generation of archeologists that are our age who are far more inclusive and equitable. So really, you know, step one is, our generation needs to be the ones running the CRM companies. We got to be the ones who are deans of colleges, editing volumes. So it's really going to be like a 10 to 20 year process, just growing, you know, just letting time take place. I mean, there will always be individuals who do not agree with being inclusive. You know, there, you know, we still have some very problematic individuals who have a very one-sided view of what it means to study the past who are still teaching or still running CRM projects and they will, you know, put their fingers. I don't even know where that was going, but put their fingers to their hair. Like they're, they're going to, what is that called? You know, they're, they're, I, I, what I'm imagining is like someone rubbing someone's temples and whispering things in their ear. Like, no, you don't need to listen mm -hmm. to Indian people, but as a field, it's just going to take time and it's going to can take commitment from those who do want to see a, a more inclusive and collaborative archeology span to not give up and to continue to teach people 
best practices in the field. And eventually it's just going to be a matter of time and perseverance. And so what I hope to see one day is like, if I, I want my perfect image of an equitable inclusive archaeology, if, if there was like an essay where they took a photograph of everyone that attended and it's going to be equally representative of every geographic background age. Um, and I mean, you can't see sexual orientation in a photo, but if, you know, and I would never ask an appendix that showed one, but basically you'd have like <laughs> everybody is represented equally there, all sorts of backgrounds, denominations, orientations, right. You know, that's, that's what I'd see. And just being respectful. Like, I mean, I think our field in general in the past couple of decades, so I'm told I haven't been around that long. Those whole old world ontologies of horrible professors just being yelling at students and the arguments that used to happen just don't happen as much anymore. They were kind of moving towards that anyway. I don't know. It's uh, something that I hope for and continue to, to continue to do. And that's why I do a lot of my talks. And the point of my talks are just basically like, why don't you just ask indigenous people about their past? Like not hard to do. <laughs> yeah. 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 No disagreement here. Well, we're going to take another quick ad break and then we'll be back with the last two questions that we, that we also ask all of our guests and possibly the hardest ones. Uh, so we've been told. So we'll be right back. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. All right, we're back, and we've got two more questions for our guest, Carlton Shield Chief Gover. Thank you again so much for joining us. Um, it's been a pleasure. And and now we've, we've really, we are here to test you, so choose wisely. Uh, no, we have our, our last two questions, which we ask all of our guests. And the first one is, what is your favorite thing about anthropology? I love how holistic it is. And basically, it is a great way of studying what it means to be human. Like one of my favorite little water bottles we have here at CU Boulder, the tagline is major in being human. And that's right. You know, it's such a holistic study of humanity from contemporary to the past language, biology, cultural. It's just so crazy. However, I don't think archaeology should be an anthropology. Oh, mm. go on, please. I like the European system because archaeology is history mm -hmm. and as a field in North America, you know, you're basically, you have all these non-indigenous people using the indigenous material record as a case study for human behavior and not as seeing it as a history of native North America. And those are two different ways of looking at it. Of course, you have British archaeologists working in the British Isles. They, they're doing a history of their continent, of their island. 
and what it means to be British. That's not how North American anthropologists generally see the archaeological record. Hmm. And so they don't yeah. think, you know, if, if you're if you're looking at this as, well, this is a case study in human behavior. Why do I need to, if I'm working on Folsom, why do I need to talk to indigenous people? It's like, well, just because well, it's 12,000 years ago, it's still their history. And so there's that kind of disconnect of mm-hmm. responsibility and who you have responsibility for. Mm-hmm. Under archaeology's anthropology, you have the responsibility to yourself because this is your research and this is your understanding of human behavior. But if you're an archaeologist in a history department looking at the same thing, your responsibility is then to the people whose history it is. And I think that's a really good um, illustration of your, your previous comment about archaeology being a colonial endeavor because it's sort of, but you are recognizing the um, sort of existence and humanity and, and history of, of a population. If you are tying it to their history, not saying like, I'm going to science out human behavior. Exactly. <laughs> these, like, you know, these early humans here. Like that's not, um, no, great, great hot takes. <laughs> Piping hot. Um, and so our last question, if you could be a fly on the wall for any moment in human history um, or in the history of anthropology as a discipline, what would you choose? Ooh, Something I've always wondered were the discussions between Dennis Stanford and Bruce Bradley over Salutrian. Oh. If I could be a fly on the wall to hear how they piece together that brilliant idea. Referring to the the stone tool technologies of North America or? Like the Salutrian hypothesis that people came here from Europe because of Salutrian points that they make Clovis somehow. And it's just, I just would love to have been there when they came up with that idea and like talked this out. So, oh yeah, I'm so sorry. we've we've never Could talked you? about this on the show, and <laughs> I know what on? this is, but Amber does not. I don't not. have any idea what you're talking about. It's interesting, and I have, I have the utmost respect for Dr. Stanford and Dr. Bradley. It's there's there's this theory that, and I will, you know, the white American white power associations love it because they think it proves oh, no. that Europeans got here first. That's a whole other can of worms that we don't need to discuss. But yeah, that there is a European migration and they're not even like Aryan or Indo 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 Europeans. They're not even that. Mm-hmm. Okay. But that there is a group of people that got here from the Atlantic from southern France yep. to North America first. And, and and this is based on similarities between the Salutrian stone tool technology in Europe and Clovis and other similar uh stone tool technologies in the Americas. Yeah. Minus the fact that they're separated in time by a couple thousand years. Clovis yeah. points are fluted. Salutrian aren't. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to figure out <laughs> how they make this case. But I would have loved to have been there to be like, and f- yeah. uh, for that, you know, that would have been fly moment number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. But maybe like a second one. <laughs> if I could have been there for... Um, Bellazzoni, Bellazzoni. Oh, Bellazzoni. Yeah, the the, Bezel, the giant I, Italian strongman who like blasted yes. through a lot of antiquities. If I could have been there, I, one of my favorite poems in the world is um, uh, Percy Shelley's Ozymandias. So if I could have been like a fly or a sand beetle to watch <laughs> them pull that uh, Ramses the Second statue out by Belzoni in his little circus and see Percy Shelley like writing about it, that would have been cool. He's a very strong Italian. Yep. Oh, geez. He was a circus strongman. <laughs> he and, was. And I know. Then, I know. Okay. I know. Yeah. We were going to do an episode on him at some point, And then I think we were just, just like, no, maybe we don't give him a platform. 
You know, I was crazy. I was just down because I was down there working near Mesa Verde. I went to Canyon of the Ancients to their uh, exhibit they have there. And they were talking about the the Swede dude. What is his name? Um, we just talked about him on the podcast. Gustav Nordenskold. Yeah, him. That there had this exhibit on him. Like, oh yeah, there's he did all these excavations in uh, Mesa Verde and one of the most complete and accessible collections you can find in Sweden. And I'm like, are they really accessible though? If you're an American archaeologist studying Mesa Verde to have to fly to, and they completely did not talk about the whole dynamiting the place or basically yeah, robbing the place and it leading to, yeah, the docents thought I was a blast when I was like, how come you don't talk about the antiquities act? And they're just like, dude, this is for the public stop. <laughs> like we don't need to be downers here. And I'm like, I guess, but this is history. Excellent answers all around. Before we wrap up, do you have anything besides a life in ruins podcast, which is excellent and available on the Archaeology Podcast Network. Anything else you want to plug? Anything going on? Ooh, yeah, I got Instagram. You can follow me um, at Pawnee underscore archaeologist. Twitter, I think I'm just Pawnee archaeologist, but Pawnee is spelled differently. It's P-A-N-I, which was like the you know old-timey version to spell it. No, it's Pawnee archaeology. I had to make the username fit the character count, so I had to get creative. <laughs> um and then uh, Life and Ruins podcast has, uh, you can find our content there. That's also on Instagram and Twitter. Generally, you can find me on YouTube. Oh, Just great. type in Carlton Gover. That you can find all my, most of my talks with Crow Canyon or Colorado Council of Professional Archaeologists, SAAs. So most of the talks I've given during the COVID time have all been recorded and run YouTube and that I've given to um, the Pawnee Nation. So if you're interested about my work without reading my thesis, which is really dry and boring, <laughs> um, go watch a talk. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much. And so listeners, that'll do it for us this week. Thank you again, Carlton, for joining us. This was a blast. Uh, and we will be back in your ears next week with another episode, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, or anywhere else that podcasts come from. And you can find us on social media. You yeah. can follow us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast, where we uh, reach cool research and make some stupid jokes. Yep. Um, roughly 50-50 there. Yeah. Uh, and you can follow us on Instagram at The Dirt Pod as Anna continues to learn how to stories <laughs> just watch me grow <laughs> or if you don't want to go to any of those places you can see all of our social media smushed together on our website thedirtpod.com where we also have fun merch like stickers mugs and t-shirts plus every single one of our back episodes so that's there for you to enjoy if you miss us until next week we love you everybody goodbye <laughs>This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.